Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music. After more than two weeks of non-stop wall-to-wall coverage of the war in Ukraine, coverage that gets bloodier, more brutal, harder to watch, and to stomach with each passing day, you might very well be looking for the occasional distraction on the tube, a sporadic respite from the relentless bombardment of your senses and your soul on cable news. Something fun, something funny, something uplifting and lighthearted, the kind of thing my dearly departed father used to talk about fondly, wistfully, and precisely in moments like this. Flying down to Rio, my dad would say, whenever the shit got really heavy. Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dancing on the wings of airplanes. Well then, dear listeners, you're in luck. Times two, because this episode of the podcast is in fact a purely distilled form of escapism, an audio no-fly zone in which there will be 0.0% discussion of Ukraine, Russia, Zelensky, Putin, Biden, barrel bombs, tactical nukes, chemical weapons, none of it. And we'll instead highlight a new TV series that you really got to watch. And while it's not exactly flying down to Rio, in that it's a dark and disorienting sci-fi thriller about alienation, grief, shadowy and conspiratorial corporate skullduggery, surgical and possibly irrevocable consciousness alteration in service of the ever-elusive work-life balance, and a generally dystopian future that bears certain uncanny similarities to our present-day reality, it is incredibly good, fully absorbing, and wildly distracting in the best possible way. The series is called Severance. It premiered a few weeks ago on Apple TV+, drops new episodes every Friday, and is about halfway through its first season, so it's the perfect time to dive in right now, which you will certainly want to do after listening to our conversation here today with Severance's star, the one and only Adam Scott. When you're in the throes of trying to, you know, cobble an acting career together and convincing yourself that you're doing just fine, which is what I had to do for those 15 years is constantly think like, this is exactly the way it's supposed to be. I'm doing great. (laughs) But it's not until you actually hit on something and get some traction that you look back and realize like, oh my God, I was nowhere. If you are an Adam Scott fan, and I mean what thinking person with any taste whatsoever isn't an Adam Scott fan, you surely think of him primarily as a comedic actor and with good reason. After graduating from the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in Los Angeles, Scott made his debut on TV in 1994 and then spent the next decade plus living from paycheck to paycheck, schlepping from minor part to minor part, hanging on in the business, as he puts it, quote, by a piece of floss, unquote. Then, in 2008, came Scott's big break, the role of Derek Huff, the uber-douchebag bro character in Adam McKay's classic Will Ferrell, John C. Riley comedy Step Brothers, after which Scott's career exploded, making him a ubiquitous and much-loved, or when called for, much-hated, or really much-loved for being much-hated, presence in TV shows such as Party Down, Eastbound and Down, Parks and Recreation, and The Good Place and films such as Friends with Kids, Bachelorette, Sleeping with Other People, and The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. It was working on that last film, Walter Mitty, where Scott met Ben Stiller, the executive producer, director, and presiding creative force behind Severance. 
Like Scott, Stiller has long been known mainly for his estimable body of comedic work, but with his widely and rightly lauded 2018 series Escape at Danamora, and now with Severance, Stiller is now staking a claim as a dramatic director of the first rank, and something similar may be in store for Scott as an actor. He's earned plenty of accolades for his performance as Ed McKenzie in two seasons of HBO's Big Little Lies, but his work in Severance is on another level entirely. Textured, subtle, at times tortured, and so persistently riveting that even amid a standout cast that includes Patricia Arquette and John Turturro and Christopher Walken, he basically carries the entire series on his back. Adam stopped by the recounts offices last month when he was in New York to hit Colbert and Good Morning America to launch Severance. We talked about the trials of making the series during the pandemic, from coping with the loss of his mother not long before COVID hit, to living alone and apart from his family for months during production, to getting the bug himself during filming, and the ways the material rhymed with the forbidding and unnerving moment the country has been going through these past few years. We also took a walk down memory lane discussing some of his comedic high points, including Party Down, which, as it happens, Adam is currently shooting six all-new episodes of for stars to air later this year, as well as our mutual and equally fervid love for Talking Heads, U2, and R.E.M., three iconic bands to which Adam and his friend Scott Ackerman have devoted a long-running and wildly enjoyable podcast. But worry not, those of you looking forward to the promised diversion from the horrors of what Russia is doing to Ukraine, there is no talk about life during wartime here, or Sunday Bloody Sunday, or it's the end of the world as we know it, even though, you know, it may be. Instead, there's just a delightful chat with a very fine actor who, in different ways, with both Severance and the forthcoming Party Down reboot, is doing his best to keep our minds off of the flickering flames and the rising tides of our current state of hell and high water. Hello, my name is Mark S. And I have, of my own free accord, elected to undergo the procedure known as severance. I give consent to sever my memories between my work life and my personal life. I acknowledge that once the procedure is complete, I will be unable to access my personal memories whilst on the severed floor. Say gratitude. Nor will I retain work memories. Hey. Sorry. When I return home at the end of the day. I make these statements freely. Normally, I don't like to play trailers. Like, trailers are not great. That trailer, though, actually lays out a lot of what the, what yeah. the series is yeah. about, right? So does he make those statements freely? That's a really good question. <laughs> yes, because I think a lot of, you know, when people go in and get severed, get the procedure done, it's something they choose to do, that they've decided they want to do with their life. And yeah, they make that statement freely. The half of them that is severed, that is at work, that is unaware of the outside world or who they are in the outside world, they didn't make that choice. The person on the outside world made that choice for them. There's a dinner scene where uh, one of the guys that 
your character is talking to says, you know, so you're basically a prisoner there yeah. at the office. I guess without spoilers, talk about what the setup is. Yeah. You know, it's a dystopian workplace drama that's in the realm of sci-fi. These are not normal genres for you, by right. the way. Right. But that has the setup that we just described. This yeah. is what these people undergo. But what's it really about? And what was it that made this appealing to you, given that it's not really your genre, right? You've yeah. done a lot of drama. You've done a lot of comedy. Yeah. But not a lot of sci-fi. You know, you get this chip implanted in your brain. So when you go to work and get on the elevator, there's something triggered in the chip. So while you're at work, you have no idea who you are in the outside world. Vice versa, when you take the elevator up at the end of the day, it gets triggered back. And in the outside world, you lose all the memories of what you did that day at work. So it's two separate lives. I mean, when I read it, first, Ben Stiller told me about the idea in like January of 2017. I remember I was standing in the snow at Sundance and he called me and just kind of gave me the elevator pitch, like the three sentence big idea, the hook of the show. And I couldn't kind of get it out of my head and didn't read an actual script for another couple of years. When I read the script, my initial reaction was like, this is exactly what I want to watch. This is the kind of show that I love watching purely from an audience member's perspective. As far as being a part of it, I've never had a chance to really be a part of something like that. So I thought if I get to actually land this job, it almost felt like this is what I've been working towards what I've been kind of earning for 20 odd years is a chance to get a role like this in a show like this right. with someone like Ben and Dan Erickson who created and wrote it. So to me, it really felt like the culmination of everything that sort of came before. It's interesting because it is dystopian. I mean, just the way it looks is mm -hmm. kind of like early 70s yeah. noir Parallax view. Parallax almost. view. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. like a noir sci-fi, which is sure. kind of like, or like a little bit of Blade Runner to it. Like there's uh -huh. like, not quite so techie, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's very dark yep. and it's meant to make you feel alienated as you watch it. And you get that, right? I mean, first of all, this is 17, right? When Ben's talking to you about it, right? Yeah. Trump has just been elected. Yeah. That sense of dystopian things. Yeah were starting to seem more like this was a kind of wave of dystopian stuff was about That's to happen, right. right? Also, this kind of like evil corporations doing stuff, again, very early 70s, mm -hmm. kind of popping up in the culture. By the time you guys get to shoot it, we're in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. We're like, it couldn't be more dystopian, right? So again, I ask you, like, what do you think it's about? What's the show really like about at core? Alienation at work about, I mean, people can make glib comments about the work-life balance or whatever, but What's it really getting into yeah. that connects with the culture? Because I think it does. Yeah, sorry, I didn't really answer your, yeah, that's your okay. question. I mean, I think that's all a great way in to the characters. I mean, for me, I feel the show, at least this season, is largely about grief and how to come to terms with grief. I think it's about many things, but that's kind of where I found it was this character who is grieving his wife and chooses the severance procedure to exit his life for 10 hours a day, whatever, just so he doesn't have to feel. And this other side of him still has those feelings inside of him, but just doesn't know what they are, how to locate or name it. But physiologically, those things are still there. And so it's about this person and both halves of this person coming to terms with 
a lot of things, but for me, I felt it was mainly grief. Right. And all the corporate stuff and all of that is incredibly important too. But I guess when you're asking like the core of what it's about, right. for me, that's where it lies. I remember we were texting about this when you came out here, right? You came to New York to shoot this thing in October of October 20. 2020. And you were here for nine months, eight months? Yeah. Long time, right? Peak COVID time, yeah. right? You're living like basically alone in like an apartment in Tribeca. Yeah far away from your family, yeah. and your mom had just died? Yeah. I'm asking about this because of yeah. grief. It seems like shooting stuff during COVID was hard for everybody. Yeah. You know, the circumstances in production we had the challenges of yeah. that. But it, it seems like your experience with this would have been even more like emotionally resonant. Yeah. If, if that's what the show's about, about grief, you're having your own experience of grief, and you're having to go through it in this very dislocated, weird environment where you're yeah. like basically isolated for a long shoot with a lot yeah. of complexity and a lot of people getting sick and some people dying and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Pandemic New York pre-vaccine was a whole different world. Yeah. I mean, it was nuts. And, you know, I have a wife, a son and a daughter in Los Angeles. My mom died like days before pandemic, days before lockdown. And so we actually didn't end up having a memorial for her until this, this past December right. because of, you know, know. Uh, everything, obviously. So, yeah, I, you know, over the five, six months of lockdown, I was in with the three people who I love the most, who love me the most. And I don't want to say cushioned the blow, but they loved me. And so we kind of, you know, the, the loss of my mom was they really helped me through it as, you know, family does. And then suddenly, like you said, I found myself here alone in October of 2020. And that changes things. And so you're alone in, in, a, in an apartment in a city that's locked down. I, you know, I have friends here, but it's not like there was a ton of socializing. And I couldn't get sick because the show would, would have to shut down. I did get COVID at one point and it did have to shut down. So, yeah, I realized then sitting in this apartment by myself that I had a lot of grieving still to do. And I had to come to terms with this loss. And the only place I had to turn to really was the show. And so I came to terms with her death and with my grieving through the show more than anything. Do you think that the, I mean, I'm always curious about this, right? An actor in, in a role like this, right? You bring a lot of your stuff to, mm -hmm. the, to the table, right? So yeah. given your circumstances, it seems natural that the grief element would be a thing that you would attach yourself to in this material, right? Yeah. Do you think that's because it's innately in the material or do you think that's more like what you're bringing to the material? Like if I had asked Ben about it in 2017 when the script was first yeah. coming together, well, he would said, yeah, this is a meditation on grief. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. That's why I say there, for right? me, yeah, that's yeah. what it was about yeah. because it, it was. Thank God the show was there for me <laughs> at that time. If the show was about dancing, I don't know if I would have been able to really go through this grieving process that I kind of allowed myself to. The show and the character circumstances allowed for me to really dig into it and, and figure it out. And, you know, I can't speak for Ben, but Ben lost his father around the same the time. Same time. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think we were both feeling it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Let me play this other clip from the first episode between Mark Adams' character 
and a woman who appears in this first episode. Britt Lauer, yeah. So I'll never leave here. You'll leave at five. Well, actually, they stagger our exit, so 515. But it won't feel like it, not to this version of you anyway. Do I have a family? You'll never know. And I have no choice. Well, every time you find yourself here, it's because you chose to come back. I mean, that kind of goes against back to the first question I asked you, which is like, how much do you freely consent, right? I mean, it seems like that's another thing that's in this show. But it seems like one of the other things that's kind of being grappled with here is this notion of free will yeah. on some level. You played a lot of characters, like 123 film and TV credits. That's yeah. a lot of credits, right? When you first got this, we're headed in to do this. I remember you saying to me, this is like terrain I haven't really explored before. Yeah. But you were more talking about genre terrain. It was mm -hmm. like, I've never really done sci-fi before. This is really mind-bendy. Like, I'm really psyched to be doing this. Mm -hmm. It's also, it seems like, alongside a lot of the more dramatic parts you've done, this is also, in some way, even past some of those in terms of the, the kind of philosophical core that's in mm -hmm. the middle of it. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it is really interesting because the version of my character, Mark, who's on the inside of Lumen, you know, when we find him at the beginning of the story, he's kind of a somewhat of a company man. He's yeah. not asking any questions. He's just keeping his head down and doing his work. And then Heli, played by Britt Lauer, comes along yeah. and starts asking questions that no one wants her to ask. Right. But you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. And so once you start thinking about free will and the fact that you're down here working this job and you didn't choose to do that, but you kind of did, just a different version of you did, then pretty quickly you start feeling a little unsettled and unmoored because this is your entire existence. Right. So yeah, the philosophical and sort of ethical questions just sort of sprout out from there. You're basically playing two versions of this guy, right? There's the company man, mm -hmm. the version of himself that is at the office and the version of himself outside. You see mm -hmm. that even in the first couple episodes, like they're different, yeah. you know, and the... The outside guy, the outside version of Mark, is angrier, mm -hmm. funnier, mm -hmm. drunker. Like, there's much more emotional turmoil going on with him. Yeah. And I wonder how that evolves over the course of the series and what a kind of challenge that is to play, essentially, in the course of one limited series or one series that might go on, I don't know. But playing basically two different versions yeah. of the same human that are both true to him in some way. They're both just him. Yeah. It's all his consciousness, right? But they're different guys. It's not Jekyll and Hyde, but there's a challenge to that, right? Yeah, it was something we had to figure out early on, which was, and came to the conclusion that it was important to me and to Ben and to Dan Erickson, who created the show, that this be one dude. It's not two different characters. It's one guy. It's just different parts or different halves of one guy, but it needed to feel like the same person, just different parts. We all have different parts, you know, depending on who you're talking to, you yeah. behave slightly differently. So it was kind of an uh, amalgam of that and trying to figure out which behaviors would apply to one or the other, or, you know, one of them has 40 odd years of joy and sorrow and all of those things that go into a big full life. And the other one is for all intents and purposes, like two and a half years old and is only carrying with him what he knows and what they allowed him to know. Right. 
So yeah, I mean, the, the instinct for an actor is like, oh, okay, I have two different characters. I want this one to have a mustache and this one to have a fedora with a feather in it, or at least that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> would not let me. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was tricky. And you know, we shot it all at once, all nine episodes at once, jumping around. Sure. And so we would do both halves in one day, sometimes back and forth a few times. So we had to not only remember which of the two halves we were doing for behavior's sake and for posture or voice or whatever we're doing, but also where in the story they were, because both sides of him have their own kind of independent arcs they go on. When we started this show, we were just in the very early phase of the pandemic. We were like thinking about wanting to do a show that was not like a pandemic show, but was more about the way that the pandemic connected to a much larger sense of kind of end times where people like between the economy cratering and the pandemic happening and Trump being in office and like all of this stuff, the racial justice things ended up feeding into that in 2020. Yeah. But there was this moment of like the wheels are coming off the wagon for a lot of people that was yeah. not just about the pandemic. That was like this kind of apocalyptic sense yeah. of dread that a lot of people had. And I thought that that period, we didn't know how long it was going to be at that point, but it yeah. turned out to be two years, would produce a bunch of interesting shit in, yeah. in like what people decided to make, how they decided to cope with that. How do they channel it? How do they turn it into art? What would it do to our politics? What yeah. would it do to the work, the way that, you know, remote, we're still, we're sitting in this giant office here at the recount. We've been trying to get this office open since October and we're just now finally to the point. Is that right? Get, Is this like, yes. I mean, like we moved into this office in October and we're like, everybody's coming back in October. Nope, not that doing that. Sucks. It's like, we've got space here for all these people. Yeah. And we're now literally just last week, we're saying, okay, three days a week, come in, right? Yeah. And, you know, people's relationship to their offices, their colleagues, their coworkers, a lot of people who've worked at this place for like a year and never met each other, right? Yeah, that's so weird. So it's this moment, right? And I guess my question is whether, A, you feel like part of the power of this thing, because severance to me feels very much a product of that moment. Yeah. Just starting to see the stuff that got made in that two years, right? Yeah. And this is one of the early things. It feels very much to me in sync with that sense of dread yeah. and that sense of unease and dislocation and alienation and fear and yeah. all that. And I wonder whether you feel like that's true too, like this is a product of the moment and whether for you, you had that same sense of like apocalyptic dread in that period and whether you're past it now. Uh, <laughs> just to be clear, I've never been past apocalyptic dread for as <laughs> long been, as I've been apocalyptic since the early, since your child in Santa Cruz, you've been on the apocalyptic dread. 100%. Okay, I mean, it was written before pandemic. We were starting in April 2020. That's when we were going to start, yeah. delayed six months. Yeah. But it certainly contributed to just sort of the overall tenor of the thing, certainly yeah. when we were making it. I worked with this large group of people for nine months and the entire crew, I never saw the bottom half of their faces. Usually you're, after that amount of time, you're kind of bonded with everybody and I didn't, see uh, a lot of them, nor did any of the other actors. And the actors, we would do a scene and then you immediately put your masks, especially pre-vaccine, put your masks on and go off into your separate rooms. Yeah, yeah. There's no going out to dinner with your castmates and, you know, there's none of that. Yeah. It was just w weird. Like I said, I was alone in an apartment or working on severance with fluorescent lights and bright green carpet and at a desk. <laughs> like, it was a weird existence. Yeah. I mean, at one point, my family's going to come out like for Thanksgiving or something, but then there was a COVID scare on set, so they had to cancel. I didn't see them for three months at a time. It was just 
bonkers. So all of that alienation for me, but for every single person on the production, I think certainly permeated the show, even though the material itself pre-existed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I mean, some of that stuff, that apocalyptic stuff predates the pandemic. Like I say, Trump, I mean, for people feeling like the wheels are coming off the wagon in American democracy, well, that preceded the pandemic was an yeah. accelerant to that. And on top of that, there's just the question of like how culture works, which is like, who knows why it happens, but someone makes a thing. You know, The Leftovers is a series yeah. I just went back and watched. It's a series that was made before the pandemic. But when you watch it now, and it's an incredible series when it aired. When it aired, but watch it now. Oh, yeah. And, and you're, I, I, I just rewatched it. And I'm like, it's more harrowing and more powerful Crazy. and emotional because of what happened. So, like, you know, time marches on. Things happen. And then the way that the art gets absorbed in the culture. And I think for yeah. Severance, part of the way it's going to hit people is regardless of when it was written or what was on the writer's minds when it was all put together, yeah. was like how it lands now. Absolutely. This moment, right? Absolutely. You know, actually, when when I first talked to Ben in 2017 about the show, I was standing outside in the snow, but he had just announced a travel ban January 2017. It was right after inauguration. What did he announce it later that day or the next yeah, day? Yeah. I was actually at Sundance. We didn't see each other there, but we had oh. the Trump movie that was out that we had just done the Trump movie on the basis of the first year of the circus. So I was there that same at Sundance that same period. And there was like the women's march happened the first week yeah, of Sundance. That's right. We were watching it on the news. That's right. From Sundance going, wow. Well, somehow I was in the women's march, but also at Sundance. So I must have just gone from one to the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was those protests for travel ban. Remember? It was yes, like, yes. oh my God, protests. Because women's march had just happened. We had to get to the airport and protest this bullshit. Right. So protesting became like, you know, a cultural thing. Like, am I going to see you at LAX or, at, you know, Burbank or wh wherever the next protest was? Yeah. It, suddenly it was thrust upon us, this new thing. And yeah, it all felt apocalyptic because we didn't know what was coming. Him getting inaugurated and hitting us with the travel ban right away. It was scary because what's next? And I think that's was all four years of that presidency was, like you said, this dread of what is on the other side of this cliff we're, we're surely about to fall off of. In some ways, it's like the pandemic, in a narrative sense, not in a real sense, the pandemic was kind of inevitable. If you're writing this story, if you're writing the novel yeah. of it, you're like, oh, of course, in the That's fourth right. year of Trump, you will have now you have some giant plague, That's some right. huge uh, thing that will show just how incompetent they are and also kill a lot of people That's and also right. push us. And then, you know, then the Black Lives Matter protests and everything else. All that stuff feels like kind of the natural culmination yeah. of a bunch of shit that was rolling along That's for right. three years leading into it. Right? Because all those years, those three years leading up to it, people like you that I listen to and watch all the time all along were saying, well, just thank God there's no catastrophe yes, right. that he has to handle. Yes. I mean, thank God we've been relatively safe these first few years of this presidency. And then the worst thing could happen. And of course, they completely fuck it up. I'm going to ask you one question about Ben, but I want to play this Secret Life of Walter Mitty. You guys were in a movie together in 2013. Let's play that. We'll talk about you and Ben on the other side. Ben Stiller, that is. And what do you do, cake man? Oh, uh, I, uh... <laughs> I do it. The, the uh, cakes just for today. I'm not a cake man. I do. Uh, I I deal directly, directly, directly with uh, life's photo units to manage. I'm sorry, negative. I was really getting into the song. I stopped listening to. I was saying, you know who looks good in a beard? Dumbledore, not you. <laughs> <laughs> Guy. 
Okay. What do you do? I'm a negative asset manager. Worth the wait. So, like, the beard's incredible. That's, like, one of my favorite beards of your beard. Yeah. So it's, like, a nice fake beard underneath uh -huh. there. Um, also, you're, like, in kind of classic Adam Scott dick mode in that. Uh-huh, sure. Is that the first time you guys have worked together? That was, yeah. We met at, like, a premiere or something on a red carpet. He just came up and in introduced himself because he had, like, stepbrothers. And I was so thrown, I couldn't believe I was meeting Ben Stiller. Yeah. And other than that, we had never really interacted. And then he asked me to do Walter Mitty, and it was, of course so much fun and thus a beautiful friendship was born that, leads us, that leads us to severance like ben's like become like a hardcore i mean not that he hasn't done great stuff in the past but you know dan amora yeah, a great piece of work he's yeah. now like an a-list director yeah he's one of our great filmmakers right i mean i've thought this for a long time but yeah. i'm so happy that the world thinks it yeah now. because i thought walter mitty was extraordinary and unfairly treated dan amora is a masterpiece but also there's Cable Guy, Reality Bites, Zoolander. I mean, Tropic Thunder is a masterpiece as well. But Dan Amora is really, and I think also since he was behind the camera, people could really focus in and, and see his filmmaking yeah. uh, for what it is. And it's just unbelievable. I've watched the Dan Amora series yeah. several times and just can't get over how good it is. I really do put it up there with like The Wire, The Sopranos and... You know, Hamilton is like these great American works of the past, you know, 25 years or so. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think it's like I'm the last person to be an anti-comedy snob. But I do think like, A, him doing these things that are just purely dramatic mm -hmm. and going behind the camera and not being on camera mm -hmm. causes people to focus like, okay, yeah. this, is, this is just a tour work now. Yeah. He's not kind of like straddling lanes here. That's right. I think the focus has helped him. I mean, has helped his reputation, helped people be clear about how great he really is and how smart he is. And That's right. And I think Dan Amora is great. And I think, you know, the severance thing is going to push him up yeah. in that kind of pantheon more. Yeah. And I think if people go back and watch Walter Mitty with that same eye, looking at the filmmaking like that, you see just what a, an extraordinary piece of filmmaking it is. And Tropic Thunder, too. Well, for sure. I feel like it's fair to suck up to Ben since he's not here. If sure. He were, if he were here, I could There's we, no way. We wouldn't say anything like nah, 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 nah. that. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Adam Scott on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. All right, I want to step back now, go back into like a little bit of the Scott history here. The skistry? The, sk the, the, the skistry. Now, like we found the first television appearance in Dead at 21 in 1994. You did? Oh, yeah. Where did you find it? Oh, you want to see that? Well, here we go. Let's play that. Let's oh, play number five. Oh, my. Here it is. Where Dead, the fuck Dead did at 21 you find in 1994. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, we have great researchers. Here it comes. Playing Where Dan Beard. Dan Beard. My name is Dan Beard. My name is Dan Beard. I hope I'm talking to Ed, but if, if I am, that probably means I'm dead. Which I, I gotta say is pretty weird. Look, I'll make this quick, because you got no time, and I got even less. Think you're a regular kid? Oh, sorry, bud. You're a lab rat, part of a government experiment. Lab rat. You're part of a government plan to 
make smarter humans through neurocybernetics. First of all, that looks nothing like you. Second of all, wow, that's it's, weird. It's strange connections to like the current work. Yeah, I mean, it's a little like that's the so neurocybernetic cybernaut. You're part of an experiment. That's 1993, of, I think. Uh, okay, well, we thought it was 1994, but that's when it came out. Yeah, that's Now, I want to play one more thing. Let's play Boy Meets World here a little clip from that because this is more like what we think of when we think about Scott. Then we can talk about the very early days, the salad oh, days yeah. of this. Yeah. Hi, I'm Griffin Hawkins. Call me Griff. Thanks for filling in for me. I didn't think I'd make it. I'm not usually a morning person, but I wanted to make a good impression. You're Griffin Hawkins. He sure is. <laughs> Thank you, Miss Gill. You may go. Do I have to? Yes. Erica, we'll finish up later. <laughs> Take a seat, Mr. Hawkins. I mean, look, when you got it, you got it. <laughs> Griff had it he had it right oh my god people love boy meets world right people love boy they, meets world name party down is more of a cult classic we'll get to that in a little bit but boy meets world is a little bit of a cult classic they're oh yeah people are, yeah that they'll launch some careers sure you know a lot of people did guest spots on on boy meets world but boy meets world is like seminal kind of childhood television for you know people in their 30s yes now. And Griffin is like a little bit of a sexier Ferris Bueller jam going on there, right? Yeah. And I think everybody's kind of in awe of him. Everyone's yeah, in he's his... like the cool guy at yes, school, like get... snap the fingers and like his lackeys go out and Ferris know. Bueller meets Arthur Fonzarelli. Sure. Yeah, sure. I'll take it. I'll take that. Right? I mean, I was only in like three episodes, but it's sort of infamous in a way, I guess. I don't know. So if we talk about the Scott career, right? If I read this right, if I put this as bluntly as you put it, basically, it's kind of like 15 years of kind of just scrapping along, trying to get by. Yep. You're not really breaking through, not really getting traction, but you're getting parts, you're getting small things, you're taking whatever comes your way. Is that fair? Doing whatever I can. I know you told the story in the New York Times about your wife kind of saying, do you have a plan B? Yeah. Was that like really a, a moment where you were like, fuck, man, like maybe this isn't going to work? I think that when you're in the throes of trying to, you know, cobble an acting career together and convincing yourself that you're doing just fine, which is what I had to do for those 15 years is constantly think like, this is exactly the way it's supposed to be. Right, I'm yeah. doing great. <laughs> but it's not until you actually hit on something and get some traction that you look back and realize like, oh my God, I was nowhere. And it was just you know, having to drum up my own delusion just to keep myself going for years. Yeah. But when you're in the middle of that kind of self-delusion and someone comes and asks you what your backup plan is. And someone who loves you. Yeah. Not just someone, not just a Someone like sits you down yeah, and says, listen, just curious. Honey, honey sweetheart, <laughs> darling, I love you to death, but. Uh, I've been um, paying the rent now yeah, for a couple of years. Right. So I think when she asked me that, it was a heart breaking moment. I remember I was up for the pilot of Six Feet Under, right? Yeah. As far as I remember, it was me or Michael C. Hall. It went to by far the right person because Michael C. Hall was brilliant on it and is great. And I wouldn't have been nearly as good. I was not ready, nor do I have the skills that Michael Hall has. But when I lost out on that, it was like a torpedo that sunk me for a while, right. you know, it was tough. And it may have been in that era that she asked me 
what my backup plan was. And the thing is, if you look at the credits, you look at the stuff you did from 1994 to Step Brothers, like yeah. basically 14 years. Sure. There's one that really stands out in the middle of it that would have been the kind of thing in Aviator. All oh, of yeah. a sudden, like you're in the Aviator, a Scorsese movie. Yeah. With Leonardo DiCaprio and yeah. Jude Law and yeah. Kate Blanchett. And you're yeah. like, this is not a big part, but like yeah. you're in a Scorsese movie. Yeah. That would be the kind of thing that would feed the notion of like, okay, actually I'm making progress. Yes. Here, right? Things in 2004. 2004. Yeah. So it's basically 10 years in. Yes. You're like, oh, there's a milestone. Yes. Like I'm about to maybe start to break That's through. Right. right. And I remember I wrapped my work on The Aviator on exact 10 year anniversary of when I arrived in Hollywood. Right. Halloween of 2003, I wrapped Aviator and... I remember I went out, met up with John Hamm to grab beers on that night. And both of us were plugging away, not sure if anything was going to kind of come together for us. I had this small role in the Scorsese movie, which of course was great. But we were both, I think, in this tough spot of, is this ever going to to happen? Yeah. And luckily, you know, we we both kept plugging away. But... That, yeah, that was something where I was like, okay, well, I'm doing something right. Because, you know, I had, you know, audition, the audition process to be in a Scorsese movie is rigorous as it should yeah. be. But, you know, I got to go spend the summer working with him. Until this point, there's not really Adam Scott doing comedy. Yeah, that's Comic right. actor, this is not one of those things. All of a sudden, you're in Step Brothers. Yeah. 2008. A movie that almost kind of defines now a certain thing that now happens to movies, which is like a movie that people didn't really like when it came out. Yeah. Critics were not kind to it. Not at all. Did, didn't do a lot of business. It was fine, but yeah. like not, you know, not enormous. And now people love it. Yeah. You know, like in the way that things happen now in our world. Yeah. With, first of all, long runs on cable, then now yeah. it's on streaming and you can go find it. And people love Step Brothers. Like, yeah. So how does a guy who has no comedy credits whatsoever find himself in what because now seen as one of the classic comedies yeah. of a certain, you know, Adam McKay, sure. Will Ferrell, the yeah. genius of the age. How do you get that job? It was a total fluke. Someone had the role and had to drop out. So they had to cast it quickly. So they had these last minute auditions. And I went and just figured there's no way I'm getting this. So I'm terrible at auditioning. But the ones that have gone well are usually when I don't give a shit or think there's no way this is going to happen. Right. So why not take a big swing? And I did. And and it just sort of clicked and I got the job. And I was as astounded as anyone that I got this nice big role. I mean, the script was so funny as the movie is. You, you, you read it and you're like, I can't believe they're making this. Yeah. This is insane. It was, it was great. And I knew Judd a little bit because I had a small role in Knocked Up right. and Friends with Rudd. And so I've kind of, that totally helped. Shauna Robertson put me in Knocked Up. I got to know Judd a little bit. Allison Jones was a casting director who I'd known for years. She got me in front of McKay. So it was kind of knowing, you know, people over the years that helped get me in there. And then McKay hired me, luckily. So you had like these various connections to the comedy world, even yeah. though you weren't really in the comedy world. Yeah. All right. I want to play Benito Fish just to hear Little Step Brothers because, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah let's, there's, there, Alice got kind of defining just what a dick he can be mm -hmm. for laughs. 
Yeah. <laughs> we, we were so sad you guys couldn't come to the wedding. Oh, but we completely understand. Oh, yeah. you, know, you were busy fishing with Mark Cuban. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, not just the Cubes, but we had Chris Daughtry, Jeff Probst, Super Chef Bobby Flay. I mean, it was insane. I mean, it was almost too much. My yeah. God, that's oh, impressive. My yeah, we were down in the southern part of the Gulf fishing Bonita. Robert, have you ever been down to the southern part of the Gulf on the Bonita run? Always wanted to. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. It is. It's gorgeous. <laughs> Are Bonita fish big? Uh, what? Dale, don't interrupt the man when he's telling a story. No, 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 no. it's fine, Robert. Um, I was asking about the story. What's fine. this guy's deal? I don't know, son. It's okay. Well, Dale, they are what's called a trophy fish. So, yeah, they're pretty big. I mean, <laughs> what a prick. Seriously, right? This kind of becomes yeah. archetypal and Scott sure. thing, right? Going sure. forward, right? And it works for you. Yeah. Which means there must be some of that inside you somewhere, right? Like somewhere deep down, you're kind of like seem like a nice guy, but I, there's got to yeah. be some kind of like bro douchebag oh, like working must deep be. in there. It's, it's got to be in there somewhere. Because it comes out so naturally. I think it's so fun. I, I think assholes are so funny. Yes. Especially assholes who are just super confident. I mean, there's nothing funnier than an overconfident moron. Right as Will Ferrell and Steve Martin and Martin Short and everyone funny has ever proven. You know, I always loved William Atherton's performance in Ghostbusters. Yeah. Just a delicious villain. Delicious is a gross uh, adjective to use, but I, I'm going to stick to it. I, I kind of saw this role as something along those lines, as the prick in the big comedy. And yeah, I find douchebags really entertaining. But you're right, it must be in there somewhere because it's kind of easy for me to, to access. Well, I mean, you don't get typecast exactly, but there's some elements of this character that come up in a lot of oh. future stuff that which you were, there's like, hey, that's an Adam Scott type. Let's get that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can play this dick the way that I want him to be played. There are many more that I didn't end up, do. after Step Brothers, I got a lot, a lot of, of asshole attention <laughs> and, and tried to pick and choose wisely. Here's a guy who's not afraid to be an asshole. Again. Yeah, exactly. Does not care about his Q rating. It's all good. That's right. But I mean, just working with those guys though, man, just like all the performances oh. in that movie are so fucking great. I mean, they're just on fire. Every yes. single one of them, the more traditional non-comic actors, Steenburgen, like all these people yeah. are playing doing great. And then John C. Riley and, and Farrell are, are just off. They the, were great. The and I, I didn't know what, what I was doing. I hadn't really improvised much before working on this movie and that's what those guys do and so i just sort of learned on the job and it was like learning you know to throw the javelin at the olympics with the stadium full of people and the cameras and lights on you and it took me a while and i i was not great and they you know cut me together well but it wasn't until like towards the end of the movie that I really kind of felt like I found my footing. But after we finished, I kind of felt like, why would I want to do anything else? This is so fun. Catherine Hahn, by the way, yeah. we, we played husband and wife and we were both there like, I can't believe I got this job, both of us. I was struggling, but she was like right out of the gate. She knew exactly what she was right, doing right. and excellent as you can, as you can see. There comes out of this just a, a string of kind of like great parts. And like Eastbound and Down is a great example. So yeah, you know, yeah. You're only two episodes of the show, right? Yeah. And everybody remembers that character. Yeah. Now great it is. Let's play Pat Anderson getting out of rehab after his season oh, one. Man, in the yeah. first episode, first season yeah. that you're in, you're coked out of your mind. Yeah. In the episode, in the second season, you are now in rehab and getting out of rehab and having a little conversation with your sponsor. Oh, yeah. Jody Hill, actually, is yes. playing the sponsor. Yeah. I want to ask your old sponsor one more question. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I, I mean, it's actually, it's convenient because you're at the top of my list. I'm at the top of your list. I fucked Linda. 
Oh, okay. You fucked my sister. The... No. You're... Isn't your wife's name Linda? You fucked my wife? I did, but I thought her name was Linda. Isn't that Linda? It's Beth. Beth. Right. Right, of course. No, yeah, Linda was your sister. She watched. She watched? Yeah. It's crazy. But I'm sorry about that, and I hope we can make amends. This is clean and soaps. Full force. Because I feel like I'm on a new drug. Just get the fuck out of here, Pat. Well, as long as we're square. I forgot about that completely. First of all, the fact that he's fucked the guy's wife yeah. and forgotten her name. <laughs> which is like, there's just this terrible. Inc- it's just an incredible, it's terrible. It's an incredible thing. Yeah, um, that's Jody Hill who directed a lot of Eastbound. He's yeah. really funny, yeah. Like a joy to be on that show. Oh, a great yeah, show. So Again, fun. an incredible show. Could that show be made today? I don't know. You know, the earlier scene you're talking about, which is about the Jonas Brothers, yeah. and, and there's like, I mean, it's a filthy show. Filthy. A filthy yeah. show. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and so much of the humor is like transgressive over the line, totally yeah. not PC. I don't know. Could that show get made today? I don't know. Probably not. I mean, yeah. Kenny Powers is a misogynist. But, you know, those guys are so smart. They're writing that character in such a smart, enlightened way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it would get made now or if it's too crazy, but what a fun, fun show. Eastbound is great. And, uh, you know, Vice Principals and Righteous Gemstones are also incredible shows. Those guys are, are great. We're going to take one more break and we'll be back with more Adam Scott on Hell on High Water. And we are back with Adam Scott on Hell and High Water. If I had you for like three hours, I would spend a long time talking about Sleeping With Other People, which is really like one of my oh. favorite movies. Oh, cool. like, I mean, right. I love Leslie Hetland. I think she's yeah. incredibly smart and she yeah. like everything she makes is great. And I she's love great. that role, even though yeah. it's like in your oeuvre, yeah. it's a relatively minor thing. I love that movie though. And basically everything about Sudeikis that now is true in Ted Lasso yeah. was basically in that movie. Yeah. But we won't talk about it. I do want to talk about Parks and Rec though, because sure. it's like Parks and Rec is the good place we have to talk about. And sure. then we're going to talk about Party Down and a little bit about music. But yes, Leslie Hetland, man. She's incredible. She's incredible, yeah. right? She's just like an underrated star. You know? Well, she's doing a Star Wars show now. She is. Yeah. She is. That's, that's, that's a fact. I'm not sure. I don't know if anybody knows about that, but that's true. Let's play Calzones. So, Ben, why Calzone? Glad you asked, Chris. You know, there's fast food hamburgers. There's fast food Mexican. There's fast food Chinese. Blah, blah, blah. Have you ever wondered why there isn't a fast food option for Italian food? What about pizza? Pizza? Never heard of it. That's what people will be saying in 20 years, because pizza is old news, Chris. Pizza is your grandfather's calzone. Never thought of it that way. What I'm talking about is a portable, delicious meal that is its own container. It's a whole new spin on Italian fast casual dining. Amazing. Now, you of all people like this. I'm going to use low-fat ingredients. Game changer. And I will call my new Italian fast casual eatery the Locale Calzone Zone. This is like one of the great comedy series of our of our lifetime, right? Parks? Yeah. I thought that before I joined the show because yeah. I didn't get there till the end of season 2 and they were already one of the great comedies and yeah, I you know, Mike and Amy really built something truly special. If I wasn't on it, I would feel exactly the same way. What do you think it is about cuz you know, you did these two shows that Mike Scherz, right? This yeah, show, yeah. This show place, and yeah. The Good Place, right? Yeah. I feel like there, there's a deep connection between those two shows. I think there's everything that Mike Scherz does. Mike uh-huh. Scherz, the showrunner. There's a connection between those two. They're really smart shows yeah. that grapple in a sitcom form mm-hmm. 
a bunch of really kind of ambitious, I don't know if exactly ideas, although I think The Good Place has actually some ambitious ideas in it, but also ambitious themes yeah. about goodness and virtue and, yeah. and other things. And yet they also are really, really funny and yeah. they have this huge place in the culture. What's it like to work with, I mean, on both those shows, this one and that one, working with someone who's, I don't know, kind of like a certified genius in that yeah. way? There's just a vision in the middle of that and that's part of why I think these are the things you're known for, right? Yeah. I mean, particularly Parks and Rec. Yeah, I mean, Mike is obviously a hyper-intelligent, deeply funny person. And I think that with Parks, he was pushing something really good into the world. We went there feeling like we had world-class jokes, like not just Mike, but the whole writer's room. It was just filled with the most talented group of uh, men and women. And we got these, these great jokes. It was so funny, but also we all felt really good about what we were doing. And we all felt kind of warmly about the show and about each other. And I feel like that really came across on screen. You could really feel it watching it, that these people were enjoying each other and enjoying what they were doing. And I think Good Place even pushes that even further. I think the Good Place being in the world is, because I remember it premiered soon after the first debate or one of the Trump-Clinton yes, debates. Right in 16. And then went on hiatus after he won for a little while and then came yeah. back for a few more episodes in 2017. It's very much a series of that moment, it feels like to me. And like the idea of, for people know The Good Place, there was a story about him. I've never met Mike Sure, but I've heard a million things about him. There's a story about him where he he had all these David Foster Wallace quotes on his walls mm -hmm. when he worked on Parks and Rec and on, on Office. The Good Place. Oh, yeah. And, and I think and they're the same things in the center of all those things. Office, Parks and Rec, and Good Place. Yeah. Good Place is the most explicit one. Yeah. Here's a show that's about kind of what it means to be good. It's yes. about moral philosophy on that's some right. level. And the David Foster Wallace quote that was on his wall for a lot of this says, from an interview that Foster Wallace gave, obviously before he died. So look, man, I, I, we probably, most of us agree that these are dark times and stupid ones, but do we need fiction that does nothing but dramatize how dark and stupid everything is? In dark times, the definition of good art would seem to be art that locates and applies CPR to those elements of what's human and magical and that still live and glow despite the times as darkness. Really good fiction could have as dark a worldview as it wished, but it'd find a way both to depict this world and to illuminate the possibilities for being alive and human in it. That's like, all of his stuff. Yeah. There's something about the reason why this work that you've had the privilege of being in, yeah. why those shows connected within the standard guise of a 22 minute network I sitcom. Know. The ambition of that is vaulting and yeah. almost ludicrous to try to make a show about moral philosophy and goodness and put it on network television That's in right. a sitcom format. But the reason why it's stuck is because people connect to that deeper stuff. It and the degree me. of difficulty is increased so exponentially like you said, being stuffed into 21 and a half minutes on NBC, on a network. And I find that those shows are doing so much more good being beamed out to any household in America for free. Anyone has access to this. And just the, the good place, the device of, of being able to curse on it and just changing the curse words because of the world they're inhabiting was just a master stroke as well. But just the fact that Mike is, I hope he continues working in, in network TV as well, because having these, these things that are made for a mass audience, yeah. but not made for a mass audience, you know, they're both of those two things at the same, made for a mass audience, but not talking down to the mass audience, like putting out something that Mike feels 
the mass audience is ready for and and more than uh, than smart enough for. They did a little digital short about Trevor, your character, the demon in the show. They're a little, they did a little digital short that's like uh. the best of Trevor that NBC did at some point on uh. The Good Place. These are a little of two of your catchphrases rather than an actual scene. Sure. Smile more. You have such a pretty smile. Red, 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 Still waiting on that smile, gorgeous. We hooked up. No, we didn't. Yeah, but who are they going to believe, me or a woman? Perfect double date. Two losers, a trash bag, and a demon. Let's hit it. Someone made a person out of wet mulch and leaves and, like, dead slugs, and that's you. Fire in the hole, watch your heads, ladies. The dudes tend to boomerang around the room. Oh, man, this is going to make a primo dump later on. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, it's moral philosophy with fart jokes. Oh, it's, what a terrible person. This is genuinely fun and flattering that you guys put these clips together, but it's also... Uh, I've played a lot of like horrible people. Yes, but coming to realize the great thing about that is, like we said, it's kind of working within that format, and it must be just a lot of fun to play. I mean, oh, yeah. like, I mean that is a joyful performance. And Kristen Bell's a great friend of yours, who you've yeah, been on a lot of things with sure. over the years. Yeah, she did Party Down as well. Yeah, she's great. Speaking of which, it's coming back. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is not a Mike Sure thing, right? The thing That's about right. Party Down is that Party Down is not about moral philosophy. No. <laughs> or what it means to be good. I just want, for anybody who's not a Party Down fan, doesn't know anything about Party Down, yep. what is Party Down? Why is it coming back? It was not, again, like Step Brothers, although even on a more, like not a lot of people saw it when it was originally. Oh, no, out. when it was out. You know, part of the reason I feel it's special as it is, is when it was out, no one knew it existed. Like, we couldn't get magazines or newspapers or whatever to even review it. Some did, but we, we were just begging for attention just so people could find out about it. I think the series finale got astronomically, what ended up being the series finale got really low numbers. But that's part of what made it special because no one was watching. We were just doing it for ourselves and for each other and just having the best time. And we thought what we were doing was really cool but figured no one would ever see it. So we're just going to do it for fun. And then people discovered it after it was canceled. It truly is a cult classic. That is, yeah. this is like actually the definition of a cult classic, right? Also yeah. a really quite, a, a, I mean, a filthy show. It's a show about sure. like a catering company. Yes, a catering company. And so each episode is a different event being catered by this catering company. And the catering company is made up of showbiz sort of fallouts, like an ex-actor, someone trying to be a writer. It's Jane Lynch, Martin Starr, Megan yeah. Mullally, Lizzie yeah. Kaplan, Ken Marino, Ryan Hansen. Hope I'm not forgetting anyone. It's a, an incredible cast. It's just all like heavyweights. Originally on 2010? 2009. 2009 we started shooting in 2008. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so we were talking about a decade has passed. Yeah. And, and like there was demand to bring it back. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's awesome. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not being so. I'm no, not being, no, no, I'm no. Not being People are really thrilled, and every time someone asks me about Party Down, I'm like, "So you've seen it?" Like, yeah. I'm still kind of amazed and thrilled because I think people had to really dig it up to find it. They had to discover it, so that it's sort of special to a lot of people, which is great. And so it's 12 years after we finished season two, we're coming back for season three, and we've been shooting now for for three weeks or so. Let's play that from Party Down from Nick DeSinto's Orgy Night in 2010. Hey, everything okay? Besides the fact that we're catering an orgy, yeah, everything's just 
great. I know, I know. Alan Duck said he wanted us to work it, okay? And to call if it got good, so you can be in charge of that. Okay, if you're uncomfortable, I can have you switch with someone. Hey, Roman, switch with Casey, okay? Casey, you got prep and garbage. Oh, garbage. Okay? Cool. Yeah. So for the crime of having standards, I get thrown on garbage? Well, it's not a crime. I'm just giving Thank you another you option. Thank you for that. Really? What? Nothing. That girl has got a great ass. Hey, the two just, of you just go okay. fucking tag team that ass. Do you want to tag team no, it together I, and then high I'm, five each other? Just for the record, I'm not into that. Two guys on one chick. You're a perineum away from kissing dick. Okay. There are many exchanges on the show related to like what the proper amount of ejaculate is. That's is that right? That's another famous, I famous scene that you're involved in. This is like a show where you're not like the asshole in the show. You're actually kind of the nicest, that's the right. most, you're sort of the straight guy in the show. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you get to be kind of like the decent one or the semi-decent one. And you look really good in that pink bow tie. Oh, thank you very which much. Which is kind of your, we're going to get that again on the reboot. Yeah. Pink bow ties abound. Yeah. You know, it was Will the, the show be as filthy? Uh, the show is pretty filthy yeah, in, a good, in a way that I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, very, it's, it's, very, it's the same show. It's the 100%. same show. 100%. Right. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, I remember the first day we were shooting the first episode, and I was doing a scene with Lizzie Kaplan, and I had never been sort of at the center of the show, kind of the straight man, like you said, around all these crazy characters. So it was an adjustment to do that rather than leaning into something. Usually I was in just a scene or two and things, so I had to really kind of really lean in and try and stuff as much performance into a scene as possible. You know, what you learn to do that over the years to try and sort of make some sort of impression. But I remember Fred Savage, who was directing, just telling me like, you can just chill out and you're the guy that we're gonna like experience all these crazy people through. So yeah. just, just lean back and listen to Lizzie and enjoy yourself and share yourself with the camera. And it was maybe the most valuable advice I, I've ever uh, gotten. Are you having fun making it? Yeah, it's so fun. How it's many great. episodes are going to be? We're just doing six. Six. And yeah. they'll be on the air when? That's a good question. This year? I don't know. I don't know. Stars is figuring it out. We're waiting. Yeah, Last right questions. I wore my RM t-shirt today. Now, I you know, have a, that's yeah, so great. You're a podcast host. Yeah. And the podcast was originally a YouTube podcast. Yeah. Then it became an REM podcast. REM. And now it's a Talking Heads podcast. Then it was Talking Heads. That was a while back, too. We haven't done another one in a while. But yeah. it's years, right? This is like back, like this has gone on over years. Yeah, like I think we start started the YouTube one in 2014 or something like that. These yeah. are bands I love. Yeah. You and I, like, are, we're the same person yeah. on this stuff. Yeah. Like, they're all like, I mean, hard on your sleeve bands, not Talking Heads. So That's much, right. But, I mean, but you two and REM are both hard on your sleeve yeah. bands. I was, you know, playing the other day. We were in the car driving back from Washington, and I was playing the song Strange Currencies from Monster <sighs> from this tour, which is like one of the right. most plaintive, yep. down on your knees love that's songs right. ever. That's right. On an album that's the opposite. That's the opposite. Yeah. Deep underneath all yeah. of the Adam Scott, he's the, the serious dramatic actor, Big, uh -huh. little, big little Lies and, uh -huh. and, and, and Severance and all that. And also the kind of comic asshole uh -huh. and also the comic straight man. Mm -hmm. But underneath all of that, there's like this some like beating heart of like some profoundly romantic dude. Yeah. Is that what that is? And I think I is get a lot of that from the, you know, I think REM was perfect in that period of time when we were teenagers because it was like, you know, this incredibly popular band with sensitive males like the smiths wasn't totally up my alley because maybe it was leaning in too much to the vulnerability and the plaintiveness but rem was was just just right in the middle and for whatever reason it just struck a chord with me and they were just they still are my favorite more than youtube yes 
More than you two. I think so, yeah. Wow. Yeah, for me, yes. And that's why we did the podcast. We followed, because I didn't want to do that. Oh, them. you love you two. I do, of course. Absolutely. And you do. I, I love I love them both. I, yeah. I, 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 if somebody asked me to choose between them, it'd be very bad. So you wouldn't be able opposite. to choose? Very hard. Very okay. hard to choose. Very hard to choose. Okay. Hard. What's your favorite REM record? Well, I'll tell you the record that changed my life was Murmur. Yeah. It changed my life because I don't think I, it's like, that was like a music from Mars. Okay. It's like yeah. you first heard Radio for Europe, and you're like, what the fuck what, is this? I've never heard anybody make music yeah. like this before. It's totally strange. That's right. I think that Automatic for the People is the best record. Yeah. Like, it's the best record. Abbey Road. And it, yes. And yeah. it, it's what Snipe, it's what the band thinks that too. Yeah. That Night Swimming, Man on the Moon, those songs are, yeah. you know. I think once they disbanded, they admitted that Automatic was. You know what? Yes. Accelerate is also one of my favorites. I know. You like some of the late ones that people I don't do. like. You don't right? like those? No, ones? I think they're fine. No, I like them. Yeah. I like them. I, I've heard you publicly advocate for, uh, for albums that others don't advocate for. But Accelerate is, is good. kind of their big comeback. And I think it's you know, it's incredible song. And Collapse in the Now, too. And how excited were you to have... You, you had Bono and the band on yeah. the YouTube podcast. How excited was that? It was incredible. Uh, we had all four of them on. You had all four. But the REM podcast, you only got Mike Mills? Did you not get the No, band? we got, got Mike whole- Mills. Then we had Mike Mills and Michael Stipe. Yeah. And then we got Peter Buck, too. We had a live show of the podcast and had an REM cover band from, I think, Connecticut come out to play and surprised them in the middle of a song that they were playing. We had Peter Buck come out and join them on stage. And keeping Peter Buck's secret from this REM cover band required, like, secret service level secrecy and... It was unbelievable. And, and halfway through it, we're just pulling our hair out, trying to orchestrate this whole thing. And we're like, wait, why are we going to all this trouble to surprise five dudes in a cover band we've never even met before? <laughs> but it was totally worth yeah. it because the look on their faces when their hero walked out and plugged in and started playing Pretty Persuasion or whatever it was. It was favorite really favorite cool. YouTube album? Uh, probably either... Joshua Tree, Octoon Baby, or How to Dismantle Atomic Bomb. Okay. What about you? I think Octoon Baby is the best of those records. I think Joshua Tree's meant more to like meant to everything to everybody. Yeah. And I think that all that you can't leave behind for the moment that it happened yeah. was a record that Even Side Two? Side one's better than side two. It's true. But you know, that post 9 11 moment was like, it, it was it was, it was incredible. A, and that tour was that tour. The tour talk about something that was conceived before something that, that had a different thing. When that album came out. I thought it was great. I loved the record. But after 9-11 happened here, I was at that Madison Square Garden show, the first show they played wow, in Madison Square Garden when they first did that. Yeah. We were just talking yeah. about because of the Super Bowl the other day, yeah. and people were rating halftime performances, and people talk about that 2002 that was January 2002. Well, the show here was in October. Wow. They were the first big concert to wow. play in a big room, and people were afraid to be at Madison yeah, Square Garden, yeah, yeah. and yet everybody came, and that was the night they first unfurled the names of the dead, and all of the first responders and firemen rushed the stage, and it was like in a spontaneous thing where there were like 500 wow. weeping firemen on stage with the band when they first rolled the thing out, and that was the thing that they built on to ultimately became the Super Bowl performance. Wow. So that was a that, special. Well, it was also that, you know, that became to your point about the point we were making before about how the context changes and then the art changes. Yeah. And, inside and the context Walk On obviously was written before 9-11, but it fit perfectly. As was City of Ruins, the Springsteen song written yes. before 9-11. Yes. Crazy. And it's it's unbelievable. You're so, a great step by. 
Thank um, you for having you me. Go, We've been trying to do this I forever. Know, forever. It's been nuts. And I'm glad I'm we're such able to do it in person. I'm a huge um, fan of yours. I'm, you know, I'm off the charts. I, like, I literally I could do like a four-hour interview with you, but you yeah, do like would be falling fun. asleep with your head on the desk. But it was great to have you here. Thank you. You got to catch a plane. Congratulations on Severance. It's awesome. Thank you. Hell and I Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Adam Scott for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and I Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Pierre Benamé and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post producer and the one and only Marshall Eisen is our executive producer. 